to invite all the kids to come on up front and have a seat. All right, come on up, guys. Find a spot. All right. Hey, Liam. Good to see everyone this morning. Okay, here we go. Everyone look up here now. All right, today as we start, I want to see if you know the meaning of a word. Okay, so I want to see if you know what this word means. The word is imitate. Do you know what the word imitate means? Yeah, to copy somebody else, right? Or to do what they do or to say what they say. That's to imitate, right? So I want to see if, if for a little bit if you can imitate me. Do you think you could do that? Do you think you can copy what I'm doing if you can imitate me for a little bit? So whatever I do, that's what you have to do, okay? Are you ready? All right, here we go. Good job. You did a great job. Way to go. You were able to imitate me. That's great. All right. So in our Bible passage today, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, right? And he says this in our verse. He says, be imitators of me. That's what Paul told them was to be imitators of me. So Paul wanted these believers to act like him. He wanted them to do what he does and to say things like he says. Later on in, the, in 1 Corinthians, in this letter he was writing to the church, he says, you be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So Paul was imitating Jesus Christ, and he wanted the people in the church of Corinth to imitate him as he imitated Jesus. So think with me, if Paul was imitating Jesus, and the people were imitating him, who ultimately were the people imitating? They were imitating Jesus, right? They were following Paul's example in that, all right? Now, what would Paul have wanted them to imitate? That's a good question, right? What are the things that he wanted them to imitate? In the passage specifically that we'll look at this morning, Paul wants them to follow him in the spiritual care of others. So Paul, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned earlier, was a spiritual father to them. He was caring for them. He was pastoring them, and he wanted the people to love each other and care for each other well, too, to spiritually care for others, just like a father would do for his children. All right, so Paul was like a father to them in the gospel, and because he cared for them spiritually, he wanted them to live rightly before God and to honor God. And so Paul here, he had reminded them of his ways in Christ, how he was living in Christ, and how he was interacting with others in the name of Jesus, and he wanted them to imitate or to copy those things. He wants them to live the same way. Do you know what else Paul wanted for them? In that passage later on in the letter where we read that you imitate me as I imitate Christ, right before that he said, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so Paul wanted these wanted these people in Corinth, at the church of Corinth, to glorify God 
just as he was living to glorify God, just like Jesus, when he came to this earth, he lived to glorify God. And so you know what? All of us can do that same thing. We have people around us. We have godly examples of people around us, people who are following Christ. They're imitating Jesus. They're following the Lord. And we can look at them and we can imitate them. We can follow them as they follow Jesus. We can imitate them. We can copy them as they copy Jesus. And it's all to God's glory. So Pastor Jeremy's going to tell us more about this. Thanks for coming up. Good job imitating. You can go back and have a seat. All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, please, uh, verses 14 to 21. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 21. Our text, uh, as I said, I didn't schedule this for Father's Day, but it happened to be on Father's Day, so glad for that, God's providence. Uh, Our text, I think, includes three things that our world hates. Our world uh, doesn't like fathers doing everything they can do to remove fatherhood. It hates discipline, and it especially hates shame. There's no sin greater than shame. We should never feel ashamed. Uh, And so all three of these are vitally connected. Fatherhood is clearly connected to discipline and then to shame. And so I think it's good that this text is here. So our text isn't mainly about fathers in the home, though, but about fathers in the church. And so we meet this principle in Scripture of... Uh, fatherhood beyond the home, if I could. This is because God is Father. Uh, This world is created to image forth God. We are created in God's image. And so fatherhood is at the head, at the heart of everything. It is a thing today to smash the patriarchy, right? But you can't. Patriarchy is indelibly woven into this created world. It's a good thing because God is Father. So you can't smash the patriarchy, but you can make patriarchy utterly destructive, which is what our world is doing, and we're weeping what we're sowing. Let me get that straight. So you have been taught that patriarchy is bad. It isn't because God is Father, patriarch is. It's true. And so you can either make it patriarchy that is good and godly, or awful and destructive, and we're currently deciding that we want to make it awful and destructive. So I want, to, I want you to get this in your head. Uh, fathers will rule. Okay? That's true. It's inescapable. It just depends on what kind of rule you'll have. There are some times where fathers rule with a wrong force and abusiveness. That's wrong. And then there's the kind of rule of a father that, as Dennis prayed, is passive. And that is even more destructive in our age. And so it's not a question of whether or not fathers will rule, but what kind of rule will fathers have in the home, in the church, and in the state. So I'm expanding fatherhood beyond the home here. We're talking about home fathers, house fathers, and church fathers, and city fathers. There's a principle because God is father. Let me read, we'll pray, and then I want to get into this fatherhood. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, 
but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have many countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray. God, your word is able to keep our way pure. We ask then that you would teach us your eternal word, that you might give us hearts that delight in your testimonies as in great treasure, and that we might never forget your word so that we walk blameless before you. In Christ's name, amen. So as I said, uh, the first four chapters of this letter are the first section. And so what I've just read is the conclusion to this first section. Paul, again, has written this letter to a church that he established. He founded it. He planted it. He spent a year and a half or so there pastoring. And now this is two, three years later. He's writing a letter back after having received a report and a letter, maybe more than, more than that, uh, of, of what he's heard. So he's, he's fathering them via letter because he can't be there uh, personally, and now we read that he had sent Timothy to them. Timothy was his right-hand man, and he has sent them to remind them of uh, his ways um, because they, they're a mess. And the mess is their divisiveness, their fighting, their pride, their arrogance. They are maligning Paul. In fact, they're listening to big talker preachers who don't have any life to back it off, and, and they're neglecting Paul because Paul, as I said last week, is too simple He's too poor, he's too weak, he's too abused, he's too downtrodden, he's not cool, and they're listening to the cool kids, which are, which are not helpful to them. So Paul began this section in, in chapter 1, verse 10, by urgently appealing to them to agree together there'd be no divisions. And now Paul gets very personal in his conclusion, seeking to exercise the authority that God has given over them, uh, even though they've rejected it. So this is a difficult thing, right? He is their father, but they've rejected him, and now he's trying to reassert his authority as father. Tenuous. And Paul states in verse 14 his purpose in this section in in the entire letter. But he's mainly talking about these sections. I do not write these things, so these things refers to all that he's written before, uh, to make you ashamed. Now, if you've been tracking at all, Paul has written things that make them very ashamed. They should be ashamed. So we'll get to that in a moment. But his primary purpose isn't just their shame. That's not his end game. He doesn't want to embarrass them. He wants to correct them. He wants to admonish them. He's a father, correcting and disciplining his children with the heart of a father. And because Paul is their father in Christ, in the gospel, he is willing to do the hard work of fatherly discipline. He warns them in verse 21 that if they will not repent of their sin, he will come with a rod, though he'd rather come in a spirit of gentleness. And then in chapter 5, we'll see the rod. He's going to hit on the issue 
that if he returns and, found, and finds them unrepentant, that he, he'll take the rod in his, in his own hands. Now, uh, I am going to take a break from 1 Corinthians for the next eight weeks or so, so we'll get to chapter 5 maybe this fall. I, this book is heavy hitting, and I need a break. So if I need one, you probably need one. All right, so Paul is not all talk. He'll come with the rod if he needs to. So Paul concludes this opening section with an explanation of his purpose. Again, his purpose isn't their shame, but their change, their repentance. He wants to admonish them to call them to repent. I want to do two things with that. First, keeping your finger here, flip over back a few to Philippians chapter 2 if I can. Some of you might have the mistaken opinion that I view you like Paul views the Corinthians. I don't at all. In one sense, this letter doesn't fit you at all. This letter is written to a people who are fighting and maligning leadership and undermining and dividing into camps and having all kinds of warfare. By God's grace, that is not us. Thank God it could be. And so keep this in mind because we could do this, but we're not doing that right now. And so in one way, this letter is not like one-to-one applicable to us. In a, in a sense, I should be pe- preaching Philippians to our church. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think that's us. I am very grateful for a church that is in the right things unified. Uh, and so even though I'm preaching through a very hard book, I see us more like this in Philippians too. Now, I'm not just blowing sunshine. Um, I'm glad for this. So why would I preach this letter then? There are some churches that really need this letter. Thank God we don't in that way. So why am I preaching it? Again, we're not sinless, and we have room, a lot of room to grow. And one of the areas that I see we have room to grow is in how Paul deals with their sin in admonishing and rebuking those in sin. He, in verse 14, says, I don't write to shame you, but to admonish you. To admonish means to firmly warn, to rebuke in the hopes of correcting and bidding bringing to repentance. My take on the typical evangelical American church just like ours is that the one thing that we no longer do at all is any kind of admonishment or rebuke or warning. Don't do it from the pulpit. Elders will never do it for those in the congregation caught in sin and no member will ever rebuke another member. In fact, the only thing that you might do that might cause people to rebuke you is to rebuke somebody who needs it. Right? The only real sin in the church today is to rebuke somebody. If you want to get rebuked, have the gall to rebuke somebody. If you want to cause trouble in the church, rebuke somebody. And this is why I think the church in America is so crazy pathetic. It is anemic in its worship and its care for each other because we will not say hard things. We refuse to do it. Um, You might remember the story in the Old Testament, Eli and his two sons who were just 
wickedly neglecting and abusing the worship of God. And when pretty women were coming in to give their offerings, they were seducing them. And Eli refused to say anything to his sons. And it ended up in their destruction. I think the American evangelical church is a lot like Eli. In the pulpit, among elders, and among people in the congregation. Uh, And it's grievous to see how hostile Christians are to other Christians who do admonish and rebuke and love. Uh, And so I want to preach this through this book, and one reason is in the hopes that you and I would grow up into this. Uh, That we, as elders, would that you would come to expect us to do this for you. Right? And that you, uh, as fellow members in the body of Christ, would be willing to do this for each other. That you would do the courageous, loving, fatherly work of disciplining and rebuking and correcting each other. This is an area we have room to grow in. We're, we're, um, we're not loving to each other as we ought in this area yet. Uh, and so that's one reason I want to preach this. Now, <clears throat> just, just to make the case in point, just consider all of the men in Scripture that God used to write Scripture, prophets and apostles. If you read uh, the prophets, what are they doing? Rebuking, exhorting, admonishing. And what, what is the cost for that. And they suffer. And who do they suffer at the hands of? God's own people. Let's, let's think of John the Baptist. If you didn't know, his life was ended by his head being cut off. Do you remember why that happened? What did he do? He rebuked Herod, the civil ruler, for taking his brother's wife. And I think he ended up murdering his own brother. Don't quote me on that, but I think so. And John the Baptist had the gall to admonish the civil ruler, and so his head got chopped off. How about the apostles? Read any letter that they wrote. What are they doing constantly in those letters? Rebuking and admonishing and warning. Think of Christ. Why did Jesus Christ die? Now we know the ultimate universal purpose that he died was to pay the penalty for our sins. But I mean, when he was on earth, what did he do that caused people to want to murder him? He rebuked them, the Pharisees. He had the gall to tell parables. And and you remember, there was that one point, I don't remember what parable it was, but and and the Pharisees perceived that Jesus was talking about them. (laughs) And it cost him his life. And so the the Christian testimony, is, especially in the leadership, is this loving, fatherly rebuke and admonishment and warning. But it comes with a cost. And we see Paul, just before this, talking about how much he and the other apostles have suffered. They're weak. They're in disrepute. They're distressed and buffeted and homeless. They're reviled. They're slandered. And they are that often in the church because of their willingness to lovingly, fatherly rebuke and admonishment and warning. And Paul is going to say here, be imitators of me. 
What does he mean? What imitate what? Well, look at what he's going to do. Some of you are arrogant. And I'm going to come. I want to come in the love, with love and a spirit of gentleness, but I'll come with the rod. Imitate that, brothers and sisters. That's why I'm preaching this. That's why I'm preaching this. And so apply that, would you? We are told time and again in our world and in the church, I think it probably is in the world because it was first in the church, that to be gracious means to not rebuke, not admonish. Right? When we see somebody who's doing something that is disobedient to God, we withhold calling them on it and we say, well, we're just being gracious. I'm just going to extend some grace. I've, have you ever heard this? We need an umbrella of grace rubbish what we mean is we don't love them enough to risk the relational discomfort and possible cost to call them back from what would destroy them we have to recover the biblical definition of love and grace in titus 2 the bible defines grace as teaching us to say no to all forms of ungodliness Do any of you think it loving of a father to withhold discipline? Is that loving and gracious? Doesn't the Bible say that exactly opposite? And so that's the first application. I would admonish you to recover the biblical definition of love, which includes doing the hard things of seeing people who are doing things that you know are not going to be pleasing to God. You know are not going to lead to long-term fruitfulness and, and goodness and don't withhold saying something. In fact, I would urge you to right now prepare for how you're going to do that when it comes up. One of the reasons we don't do it is because we haven't prepared to do it. You know that you're going to be in a conversation with somebody and gossip is going to come up. You should be preparing right now for how you're going to handle that. How are you going to admonish in that moment? Or you're going to be in church watching somebody on their phone Facebooking during singing or during preaching, God forbid. You should be prepared to handle that. How are you going to deal with that? your brother or sister there, neglecting the worship of God, neglecting hearing God's word because i got to see what's going on on Facebook. Now, if they're Facebooking about me, that's all right. But, um, that's totally a joke. All right, second, it's Father's Day, so let's apply this to fathers. Paul is, he said he's the father of these folks, so he's not only teaching us how to be church fathers, but how to be fathers. In Hebrews 12, we read that God, because He's our Father, does not withhold discipline, but loves us and disciplines us. And so, fathers, I just, I just want to call you to discipline your children, to be willing to say no to them, to rebuke, admonish, and warn them. Brothers, please teach your children. Train them to sit still and participate in worship. Don't put that off on your wife. If your children disrespect or disobey or dishonor their mother, your wife, 
they ought to receive some pain for that and not ever want to do it again. Go through the fatherly plane of disciplining your children and you will reap a reward of peace and righteousness in your children by God's grace. I want to apply this to us as elders. Paul is an elder. He's speaking directly to us. He is a church father. Elders are church fathers. So are deacons. We're adding deacons. Because this is so, he, like all elders, are given the task to admonish and warn and rebuke and exhort. This is a responsibility we have. We know as elders that if we refuse to admonish those in sin, somebody else is going to pay the cost. When you don't deal with sin, it will get dealt with. It will just get dealt with by people who shouldn't have to deal with it. We're just kicking the can down the road, be you a house father or a church father or a city father. When you don't deal with the issue, if you're an employer at work or a supervisor of workers, if you don't deal with the issue, the issue will be dealt with by people who shouldn't have to deal with it. It'll be a lot bigger and a lot more difficult. Discipline will always happen. It it just depends on, is it going to happen for the people who need it or the people who don't? And we as church fathers too often kick the can down the road. Turn to Acts 20 if you would. In Acts 20, 26, Paul is here with church fathers, the Ephesian elders, the elders of the churches in Ephesus. Paul was there for quite a long time. Paul comes in, verse 26, says, I, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. He's there talking about specifically the, the church in Ephesus. I'm innocent of your blood. And so you should pay attention. What he's saying is, when he stands before God, he'll, he'll have been faithful. He'll, he has done the work that he should have done. And what, what does that work include? What, did, what does he mean that he's innocent of the blood? Well, verse 27, he didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. He preached the word. He didn't, he didn't pass over hard parts. He preached it all. In verse 31, for three years, he did not see Snyder Day to admonish. So he is innocent of the blood of those that he was called the shepherd to father because he did not neglect the preaching of God's word, all of it, and he did not neglect admonishing those that he loved. So young men, I'm talking here to 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds, you are, by God, being raised up in a Christian church, hopefully in a Christian home, And in 1 Timothy 3, it says, any man who aspires to be an elder um, aspires to a, a noble work. The reason God has you being raised in a church like this, in a home like this, so that you might one day aspire to be an elder in this church. Which means you are going to have to know God's word and be willing to teach and preach a hard thing, and you must learn to admonish God's people, which means you first must submit to your father's admonishment and to your church father's admonishment. We need you to be elders in this and other churches in the future. 
And so do the hard work to do that now. Last, I want to apply this to all of us. Paul is admonishing them. In Galatians 6, those who are caught in sin are to be brought back by all of us. We have responsibility to church members, fellow church members, to admonish them. Now, I am not at all wanting to build a nitpicky legalistic church. That, that is not what I'm talking about. Legalism means to call people to obedience in areas that the Bible does not require. Right? Nitpickiness is the sin of pointing out everybody's little faults and problems without ever being willing to look at your own. So if we're going to admonish each other well, the first thing you have to do is check out the plank in your own eye. You have to be more concerned and hate your own sin more than in, in anybody else's life should always come in a spirit of gentleness and concern for their well-being. But we have a responsibility for this to each other, to protect each other in this way, to glorify God, to maintain the purity of our church. And, and we are nothing but sinners here, so we'll have ample opportunity to practice this. We'll never outgrow the need for this. That's why pastors' jobs are so secure before Christ comes, right? Doctors and pastors will always have a job. I don't know about the rest of you. So I, let's consider then the issue of shame. So Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. And if you've been tracking it all, you've got to say, huh? <laughs> like he, he spent the, the first half of verse 4 making fun of them. Right? Verse 8, you already have all you want. And you're so rich, you become kings. He's, he's mocking them. He says things that would cause them to be ashamed. Verse chapter 3, look at this. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, your infants in Christ. That's not a nice thing to say. You're a spiritual baby. You're infantile. So when Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, he's not here saying that all shame is in and of itself wrong and evil. Our world likes to say that. Our world hates shame. We do everything we can do to not experience the right shame that we should for our disobedience to God. So Paul is not writing to not cause them any shame because... Their sin was and is shameful, just as ours is. Sin is shameful. Now, our age is totally uh, teaching us to be introspectively concerned with how we feel. Do I feel shameful? Shame is not a feeling. So much it is a right response to disobedience to God's command. Shame does come with internal feelings. But there is a right good shame. So what Paul means here isn't that he doesn't ever want to have them ashamed at all, but he doesn't want them to wallow there. The point isn't just to get them to be ashamed and just keep them there. That's not the end goal. He doesn't want them to live in a land of shame and be there forever and ever. Amen. That's what our world does. 
Right? What Paul wants to do is bring them to know the shame of their sin so they might repent and be done with it. That's what good fathering does. Good fathering deals with sin directly and immediately to bring the shame of it, to discipline it, and then move on from it. Because that's what God does for us, doesn't he? He doesn't eternally condemn you to shame and guilt over your sin, does he? Ah. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. It's done. This is the great gift of God's grace. You come to shame over your sin. You confess it, and it's done. That's what Paul wants to do here as a church father. And so shame is a good tool provided it's used in a right way for the greater goal of repentance and restoration. This is true in your home, this is true in the church, and this should be true civilly in civil matters as well. Shame is a good gift. It should make you turn to God's grace. So let's, uh, let's take these things together. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. For I am your Father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So Paul connects, connects these issues of fatherhood and discipline and shame. Our world hates fatherhood, hate discipline. Right? We're removing all discipline from anything except for the people who call people and removing the discipline for everything, then we'll discipline them. Except for the people who commit the, un, the, the sins that we deem unforgivable in our age, then we'll discipline them. We'll ostracize them. We'll shame them. We'll destroy them. And we, and we hate shame. And I think these things are intimately connected. If you remove the goodness and necessity of the rule of a father, you will condemn people because they won't discipline to a lifetime of shame. If you remove fatherly discipline in the hopes of not experiencing shame, all you're going to do is condemn people to shame forever because they will never move off their sin, which is so shameful. Are you tracking with me? Fathers are given to the home, to the church, to the society to deal with sin. To, to discipline and exhort and admonish. This is one of the great main purposes of, of fathers. And if a father won't do that, Proverbs says, a father withholds discipline, that son will be ashamed to his mother forever. Right? You've seen it. You have a child growing up in a father's household like Eli will not say no to him will not discipline him, and he becomes high rebellion for the rest of his life and causes great shame and embarrassment to the mother. Right? A father who withholds discipline will bring shame long-term to himself or herself, to his mother, to his church, to society. And we are experiencing this in spades, all because we hate fatherhood. We hate fatherhood. We hate it. And it's nothing new. They were doing it in Corinth. They hated Paul as their father. And not only will we, reducing the importance of fathers, removing the discipline, and so causing shame, what we actually do then is we say that 
godly things are shameful and ungodly things are shameless. Fornication is rejoiced in. Purity prior to sex and marriage is shameful and an embarrassment. Fathers won't protect their daughters from sexually aggressive boys and let them go out and watch movies in the basement and blah, blah, blah. Right? Because purity is shameful. Because fatherly protection is shameful in our world. Because daughters are taught that their father's protection is shameful. And they kick against it, won't accept it. And so what is the father doing but causing his daughter shame? And Paul won't do it as a church father. He refuses to do it. So Paul, after this, urges them to be imitators of him. Verse 70, that's why he sent Timothy, that they might be reminded of his ways. Then verse 18 to 21, he says here, you think I'm not coming to you, and so, and so when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? Because you don't think I'm coming. I'm coming, Lord willing. And verse 21 then, he says, I'm coming. I, I can either come with a rod or with a love and a spirit of, of gentleness. So here's what I want to say. To fathers, church fathers, house fathers, city fathers, work fathers, whatever, the consistent demeanor of a father is love and a spirit of gentleness. That's the world we want to live in as fathers. This, is, this is, should be our full-time demeanor. A father should not be harsh. A father should not be hard to please. Paul wants to come to them with love and a spirit of gentleness. That's, that's the right demeanor of the father. Why? Because that's the demeanor of God the Father. How do you conceive of God the Father? Do you conceive of God the Father in heaven like this? Hmm? Or, or is he delightful and happy and easily pleased with his children? Paul would love to come with love and a spirit of gentleness. This, this is the full-time clothing of a father. Love and a spirit of gentleness. But Paul is willing to take off, if necessary, if there's no repentance, that clothing and put on uh, armor and get out the rod. He doesn't want to live with the armor on the rod out, that, that, that stays in the closet unless it's necessary, unless it's needed. He's willing to do it, but he would rather come with love and a spirit of gentleness. And that's because that's what God the Father is like. And so we, we should take this as men home. We should take this as men to work. Should take this as men to the classroom or to the city square or to the church. Men, we are made in God's image to live with love and a spirit of gentleness and yet with a right willingness to take out the rod. 
So when Paul says, let me do this. Paul in verse 19 and 20 contrasts himself with those that the Corinthians are now pledging allegiance to. These men who are all talk. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I find out not the talk of these arrogant people with their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. Brothers and sisters, this is the great failing of Christians, isn't it? We're, we're all talk. We talk a big game. We promise to do this and that. And we don't fulfill. We come up with big plans and we boast about what we're going to do and we sign up on all the lists in the back and we pledge to do this and that and we don't follow through. And when Paul says, uh, but their power, the kingdom of God, he's not he's talking about power. He's not talking here about miracles. He's talking about the willingness to follow through with action, with discipline. Because he says that, I'll come with a rod, that, that's the power. He is willing to come and exercise his fatherly authority. That, that's the power here. See, fathers need to take up the God-given authority that, that they've been graced with. And Paul is willing to do that. The others there are just yappers. They're just little lap dogs who bark. And sometimes God people are impressed with lap dogs who bark. They, they get all enamored with them. They get all, they give them a lot of money because they never do about anything about their own sin. And, and you like that sometimes. You'd rather have a guy up there yapping, 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 but who never confronts you personally about anything from the pulpit or in, your per, or in private. And so you'll give that guy a lot of money and you'll never discipline or get rid of him. But Paul will not do that because he's a father. So let's sum it up. Godly fathering in the church, in the house, in the city, workplace, wherever. Godly fathers realize, as Paul does, that our children in the home, in the church, workplace, city, will have countless people, voices, but not many fathers. And they are willing to pick up that responsibility. They are willing to take that responsibility. Paul is not abdicating it. He's taking it on. Second, godly fathers live and are dressed mainly in a demeanor of love with the spirit of gentleness. Fathers in any of the realms that I'm talking about should not be easily irritated or cranky. They should not be selfish. They live with love and a spirit of gentleness. Men, we, we do need more gentle men. We need hard men. We need men who don't equivocate. We also need men who are gentle in love. And so, abuse and harshness is sin. Just as passivity is, abuse and harshness is sin. Fathers should be gentle, patient, happy, easily pleased. Third, as Paul is doing here, fathers in all areas need to be willing to discipline. In the church, brothers, we need you to be willing to admonish each other. Consider the relationship between love and a spirit of gentleness and a willingness to love and discipline with a rod. 
the only way you can live full time with love in a spirit of gentleness is if you're willing to discipline. Being willing to discipline means that you will be able to live with love in a spirit of gentleness. Fathers who refuse to discipline are almost always irritated and cranky because things are not going well in the home or in the church or in the society, and they blame everybody but their own failure to discipline. Do you understand what I'm getting at? If you go to somebody's house or you see in the grocery store children that are undisciplined, what are the parents like? My dad, stop it! My dad, knock it off! Right? They're cranky. Why? Because they won't discipline. But if a parent will discipline immediately, decisively, you will not have to see that irritation and crankiness. Right? So if you're willing to discipline, brothers, you can create an atmosphere where you can live full time in love with the spirit of gentleness. But if you let things go and let things go, it's just like a garden. What do you do if you do nothing in a garden? Weeds grow. And then you go, But if you are faithful to just weed here and there as they come up, it looks beautiful. So we need to do that. We need to do that. Fourth, we need to recover a biblical understanding of shame. Shame is not wrong, provided it is used for the greater purpose of repentance, or correction, repentance, and restoration. Shame is a good gift. If a father or anyone refuses to call shame, cause shame for sin, he is simply ensuring that his wife or the church as a wife or the society as a mother will experience the shame of seeing her children destroy themselves. Someone will end up with a heap of shame. Shame for sin is inevitable. It's just that it will be short-term and lead to repentance or will it be long-term and lead to destruction. So these things are hard, but aren't they freeing? Don't you see the wisdom of God's Word, the goodness of it? Yeah, and I am not preaching this to you because I see you like the church in Corinth. Not at all. In fact, because I see you more like the church in Philippi, I think we're able to handle this stuff and take the next step towards taking on this fatherly role of discipline. Now, turn to the very end of Corinthians in chapter... 16, um, uh, verse 13. Paul's writing this to the entire Corinthian church, men and women, young and old, and he tells the entire church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. He's not just writing that to men. How do we act like men? I, I think we do this hard work for each other, whether you're a male or a female. whether you're a male or female. That's why I'm preaching this. I hope that we can take this step of maturity of caring and loving for each other by admonishing. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace as our Father that you would discipline us where we need it and that you would give us the grace to do this as house fathers, as church fathers, as city fathers, work fathers, wherever we are, and that we as an entire church would do this for each other. God, keep us from being legalistic or nitpicky. Um, Keep us from being prideful, thinking ourselves greater than another, but first checking out the planks in our own eyes. 
Um, but God, I pray this would be used of you to cause us to glorify you and to enjoy you more, to be at peace with each other, to be seeing those who are apart from you one to you because they see uh, us striving for holiness, and we'd have the freedom and protection of this. Help us to see the goodness of it, oh God, but not go beyond its bounds. We do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the charge is this. You, I want you to go from here knowing that you have a father in God in heaven and that he is yours because of Christ. And so no matter your failings, no matter your uh, life not being matching what we talked about here this morning, you have a father because of Christ. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.